don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 18. And today we're talking about 2004's I Heart Huckabees, uh, directed by David O. Russell, who we've learned is not such a good guy. Uh, kind of an enormous asshole in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so and, I guess we'll just talk about that up front for a minute. Yeah, I mean, that that video, uh, I, you know, I sort of had my suspicions. I saw this movie in high school, got really into it, and uh, found, you know, stumbled upon that I, I think it's called I Hate Huckabees. Someone trying to be clever in their titling of this video but it's just the outtake and an outtake uh, or really <laughs> not a traditional outtake but a behind the scenes footage that got released and it's of of uh, David O. Russell screaming at Lily Tomlin calls her a, a see you next Tuesday um, and I think at one point he's screaming like I worked on this script for, for three, three years, years and now you're trying to fuck it up or something like that yeah. uh, so I've always thought that was strange I've never never seen any I had never seen anything like that before and uh, didn't see it again until that Christian Bale thing where he like blew up screaming at somebody yeah uh, anyway so I had my suspicions but then yeah Matt, Matt found this uh, article about the long and detailed history of David O. Russell's uh, very, very sketchy behavior. Yeah, I'm just uh, for one, just seems like a generally kind of abusive director, like yeah. verbally and sometimes even sort of physically abusing uh, people working on his movies, uh, including the stars. So that's you know we're saying like it's Lily Tomlin. How are you gonna like scream and yell at her of all people? Um, and so there's that. And then there's also in, in real life that he uh, sexually assaulted his uh, his niece, right? Right. Uh, which is, you know, horrible on a whole nother level. And then suffered, from what I can tell, suffered no consequences for it. Yeah, something, the first thing I thought of, uh, in the article he said something like she was acting, he acknowledged that this incident occurred, but that he said that she was acting very provocatively. Yeah, him. yeah. And he it, went with the she. She was asking for it. it Defense. The first thing I thought of, and I was think I was actually thinking about this a little bit, um, while the movie, while it was happening in the movie, um, but I was giving him the benefit of the doubt because the movie's kind of awesome. Uh, but the sort of dream sequences where Jason Schwartzman goes into the bag, you know, and he's doing sort of having these visions and one of them is Naomi Watts' character um, whose name I can't recall right now she is Dawn Dawn yeah um, she's like the Huckabee's model and in Jason Schwartzman's weird sort of visions she's like taking off a piece of clothing and sternly saying stop looking at me stop looking at me you know Yeah. and it, it seems like he's sort of making that uh, a sort of old argument that like women want you to 
they actually do want you to look at them. That's why they dress a certain way. And it's like not your fault for looking at them. You know what I'm saying? Like, it it just seemed, it kind of seemed out of place in the movie. And like I said, I was sort of willing to just give them the benefit of the doubt. And then I read that article and I was like, and and that specific line about his niece dressing provocatively. Like, who cares how your niece is acting towards you? Like, it's your niece, man. Like, yeah. it, it, it should not register as provocative. Anyway, uh, these is, these are all obvious things I'm stating, but yeah. we we definitely felt we needed to acknowledge that David O. Russell's probably a probably a shithead. Yeah, he's problematic to say the least. Um, but it, it it does kind of uh, make you think of this kind of disconnect that people have about these things, where you think about the person making the the art or you know whatever that may be and then the art itself mm-hmm. right and i'm not going to be one of those people that's going to say like you have to separate the art from the artist 100% because you can't in my opinion you can't really do that um but you know for the sake of talking about this movie um i think it's important to to think about how it stands kind of on its own merits a little bit right. more there's also a, and he co-wrote it right so it's not like this is 100% well and that's what i was going to say I and mean, you saw this a lot with uh Kevin Spacey um, you know, when, when all that stuff came to light, people started boycotting um, House of Cards when that got canceled, I believe. Um, and that's fine. But, but uh, another problem, though, is that movies and TV shows are sort of uh, disproportionately linked with their stars you know the actors and in some cases directors Uh, so when you boycott say Kevin Spacey movies you're really boycotting everyone in the credits as well you know what I'm saying and and that's a sort of I know that's kind of a blurry line because like how can you how can you endorse you you can't separate them because they're in this you know they're both making money off this thing so I don't know Um, it's kind of blurry and shitty and just yeah, like there's there's no clean way around it yeah. other than to just say we're aware that he's he's done these awful things and it's just generally been kind of a terrorizer of people. Yeah, um, he did co-write it with Jeff Baina, I think is how you pronounce his name. Yeah. Who's done a few things. Uh, most recently, he did The Little Hours, oh. which is that weird like nun. Yeah, kind uh, of Renaissance era. What's her name? Albert um, Plaza. Albert Plaza. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, other other John C. Riley's in it, and which is a cool, weird little movie yeah. about witchcraft and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so he was co-writer on this movie, and then the cast, which we've already mentioned, Lily Tomlin, but like a lot of David O. Russell movies, the cast is kind of outrageous. He's just got a lot of people. Got, Talia Shire and Bob Gunton out of nowhere as. Uh, Alberts, is that his name? Albert Markovsky. Yeah, uh, it's his parents in like a, you know, two minute scene. That was yeah. interesting. Listening to Shania Twain on his surround sound, <laughs> and we have like little, uh, little pop ins from like a uh, baby Jonah Hill. Yeah. Uh, Isla oh, Isla Fisher, however you pronounce Isla, it. Isla Isla Fisher. Fisher. I think. What's uh, what's the actor's name? He's a great actor. He plays. He's like, the patriarch of the family. That Jonah Hill's the son. And, 
Yeah, damn it. I see. I wrote down. I thought I wrote down all the people who I wanted to. Yeah, to he's great. Mention. Though, man. He's awesome in uh, Burn After Reading. Richard Jenkins. Yeah, Richard Jenkins, uh, who's been good in everything I've he, seen him. He in. might have a an Oscar or an Oscar nomination. Um, he did a movie called The Visitor that was very, very good. He got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Shape of Water. Oh, really? Um, and he was nominated for The Visitor yeah. as well. Anyway, yeah, just the the cast is is outrageously good. Marky Mark, another highly problematic person. And I think, yeah, uh, weirdly, Corey and I were talking about uh, Galaxy Quest. Yeah. And Tim Allen, if you didn't know, very problematic person. He was like the cocaine king of Michigan or whatever in the 70s. Uh, Got moved to a different prison. because he ratted on all these other drug dealers. Jesus. Uh, anyway, uh, Dustin Hoffman, another problematic uh, Hollywood figure in this movie. Um, Jesus. And then some that are, at least we aren't aware of their problematics, of like Jude Law. This is um, uh, really good. Jude, this is maybe maybe my favorite Jude Law performance. Yeah, he's... he's really good in it his accent is really strong like it, yeah. it's unusual the first because you know I've seen this movie but it's been 13 years or something so yeah, me too. Uh, when he came up on screen started talking I was like oh yeah he's American in this movie um, Naomi Watts doing a, an American accent as well yeah. but that's a little bit more common yeah um, I'd be it'd be more jarring to see her with her native accent I think at this point right for me at least uh, Isabel Hubbard. He's a better. She's I love her voice. She has like the best it's really voice. Good. Um just her being like suffering cannot be diminished. Yes. Um, this is your mother, Albert. Listen, listen. <laughs> I love that scene. He's like when he goes to his parents' house and he's like, uh, where is she? Is she in here? He's like, what are you talking about? And she like comes out of the back room and like, how'd you get in there? <laughs> Um, so yeah this this movie just to sort of wrap up the, the base level stuff was not received very well um, Rotten Tomato score of 50, or no, 62 Metacritic score of 55 out of 100 uh, so a lot of people didn't really dig this movie uh, for one reason or another I imagine it had a lot to do with the plot being kind of kind of out there and being not difficult to follow but just presented in a very kind of weird way well people uh, if I can generalize anymore than people <laughs> you know people these days in our society right uh, a, a lot of moviegoers uh, check out as soon as you deviate from sort of formal realism in film like if it's not a straightforward story in in a recognizable world, you gonna check? They just check out immediately, and unless and, it's John Wick. Well, it, but that has precedent. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's yeah. like that's really just like Turbo Die Hard. Um, you know, there's a Turbo Die Hard. Everyone has some experience of an American action film, but there's not. I, I mean, there's precedence for for I Heart Huckabees for sure, but it's like European and 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and like Wes Anderson kind of twee stuff. And I actually, in my notes, wrote down Wes Anderson twee because it, it has that kind of... The soundtrack especially. Yeah. And uh, John Bryan was doing really cool stuff around the time. He had just done Punch Drunk Love in, I guess, 2002. Yeah. I wrote down a list of films he did. He's done a lot of P.T. Anderson, yeah. Magnolia, Heart 8, Punch Drunk Love. He also did Eternal Sunshine, yeah. Synecdoche, New York, yeah. uh, Lady Bird. And then he's produced a bunch of... He's produced, like, Amy Mann and Fiona Apple and all these people. Yeah, yeah. Generally cool, kind of weird, twee-ish kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Uh, like I said, I think the American audience, or the mainstream American audience, kind of checked out immediately because the... I, I was telling... I was saying earlier, I, I hadn't seen this movie in many years, and I laughed out loud hard a few times at this movie uh, it, and I appreciate it it's like when I was in high school I sort of knew it was cool but I didn't really know why yeah, you know yeah. um, and I was drawn to it but I did I couldn't really articulate why I had a similar sort of orientation to Wes Anderson where like I would keep watching the Royal Tenenbaums and the Life Aquatic and I knew like I liked it but I, I had no vocabulary to express why I why I liked it you know um and, and so uh, the, the humor is kind of absurd. People do not act like people act. The plot is secondary. It's sort of a it's sort of vignettes to make philosophical points um, or not not vignettes. It's really kind of set pieces they go from uh, you know, they're just trying to you, you can sort of feel the writing in that they're trying to get, Albert and <clears throat> Tommy. Oh yeah, Tommy. Mark Wahlberg's character yeah. into that sort of mainstream American household where Richard Jenkins is the father uh, and the Sudanese refugee is there. So you can have this conversation. Yeah. You know, it's it's about sort of interrogating the American dream against all these terrible realities of war, human suffering petroleum use as Tommy keeps harping on yeah. it's so funny how insistent he is and like that's what gets Brad Jude Law's character punched is when he says I have a BMW SUV and I like driving it and that, that's <laughs> just a bridge too far yeah. I will say it's like a really good use of Mark Wahlberg as a kind of like belligerent dude at having an existential crisis yeah um Firefighter, which is also again kind of yeah. perfect, and he he started his his existential therapy uh, as Lily Tomlin says after that whole September thing. Yeah, which is such a good way of putting that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. this movie is in two thousand four, right? Yeah. So still pretty pretty uh, close in the rear view. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when she said the the whole September thing, I was like, oh well, something I just would not have caught when I watched this in high school. Right. Um, but yeah, it is kind of interesting, and just to, to point out what the why we would even include this movie, why we, we would talk about it, is that the central plot, even though we said it's kind of, you know, ancillary to all this other stuff, uh, is about conservationism and is about trying to save this uh, forest from being destroyed, so they can put in a, a shopping mall the with marsh. like a new Huckabee's, yeah, the, the marsh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it starts. The opening shot is. Jason Schwartzman as Albert Markovsky, and you see what they've been able to save of the marsh, and it's one big rock. 
Yeah. There's like the caution tape around the rock. Yeah. Um, and, and that's such a great opening scene where you get him walking up to the rock to like deliver his poem to the press or whatever. And you get his inner monologue of just like, fuck, shit, fuck, why am I here? Um, yeah. Which happens a couple times in the movie, but that's just such a good kind of comedic opening of like you kind of understand from the beginning kind of where we are and you get that Albert's this person who's like deeply conflicted and questioning um, not just his job, but kind of his whole existence. Of like, what am I even doing here? Right, and, and that's, I think the movie succeeds most in its in how far reaching it is sort of intellectually like it's not just an ecologically minded movie it's also you know it 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 tries to go beyond just like the bare facts of like oh climate change uh, corporate takeover of the of wild land of the wilderness it's it's really kind of astute psychologically and it's and it's sort of interrogating the interrogating the assumptions of even the people that are ecologically minded you know it's like why do you care why does albert care about this marsh is as big a question of in, in the, is as big a question posed in the movie in the movie as is uh why are corporations trying to take over the marsh? Um, and so it's kind of nice because it seems like movies are kind of one way or the other. And obviously, again, I said I'll talk about it every podcast. Uh, First Reformed is similarly minded where you don't feel any sort of lack psychologically. You, you feel like you have a pretty good window into Toller's head, but you also take the sort of material claims of the movie seriously about the the desecrated world um, and so I Heart Huckabee is what I'm saying similarly has the courage to kind of go inward first uh, or or simultaneous to you know its critique of kind of external reality and and one, one of the earliest things you that the detectives played by Lily Tomlin and Dustin Hoffman figure out for Albert is that he's lied about when he tells him his coincidence with the African man. He lied about being in the Photoshop looking for stills of Jessica Lange. And what he was actually doing was planting, planting stills of himself in this photo gallery. Yeah. And, and so you realize very quickly that, at least in part, uh, his job you know, this uh, coalition he started, this conservation coalition, may be some sort of image-based thing. He's trying to make a name for himself, and he's doing that in, in any way possible. And so right away we're invited to be a little bit skeptical of his environmentalism because maybe this is just a guy trying to be recognized in any way he can. Yeah. He was there looking for stills of the the early Dylan. Early Dylan, yeah. And <laughs> he might have looked at Lang. Is it a crime <laughs> to look at Lang? Uh, and that's the Jessica Lang uh, portrait comes up in his like subconscious yeah. exercise when he's seeing all these random flashes of things. Um, and it's just funny that he he meets the uh, 
the African guy, as he keeps calling him. I got Shaquille. Um, I got Shaquille. O'Neal. Shaq. I got Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and you do learn, you know, he's got this, he might have these ulterior motives of wanting some sort of recognition for himself, and that's why, you know, he keeps including his poetry and in in the coalition's work, even though it, people keep telling him it's not doing anything, <laughs> it's not accomplishing anything, right. and it's not very good. Uh, his opening poem of you you sit rock or was it like rock, rock, no one rock. sits like the rocks or whatever it is you, you rock, teach rock. us how to sit here and just be and that's what we need <laughs> and that's that's really weirdly what the ball exercise is about is them learning to be like the rock you know when they keep hitting themselves yeah, in the face with the again. ball he's like it's like I'm it's like I'm just here you know yeah yeah uh, the whole ball exercise became like if this movie had been kind of widely accepted, I think that would have ended up being the iconic part of just hitting themselves at the ball, and that's right. where it ends, right? Of them yeah. whacking each other, trying to um, reach a point of perfect nothingness. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the last line of this movie where he's like, What are you doing today? He's like, I think I'm going to chain myself to a bulldozer. <laughs> should I bring one, my own chains? One of comes says, Should I bring my own chains? We always do. We always do. That's a great. And great yeah, it's got a lot, of, a lot of clever writing in it. Um, and, you know, we'll get to some of those scenes uh, eventually. But one thing I wanted to touch on real quick was, was the comedy of the movie. And I, I found the, the parts of it that I liked the most was when it was this kind of comedy of ignorance where it's like the person pretends as if they know what's happening, but really they have no idea. And it happens at least two times that I can remember. Have you ever transcended space <laughs> and time? Like time, but not space. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, which is yes. great. Time, not space. No, I don't know what you're talking about. And then later on, uh, it's after after Dawn, Naomi Watts' character, has had her kind of meltdown, and she's yelling at, at Jude Law's character and says, you can't deal with my infiniteness or whatever it is. That is so untrue. <laughs> Wait, what does that even mean? Yeah, what, what does that even mean? I um, love the weird recurring joke of there's glass between us. Yeah, yeah. It's glasses and then the, the and then camera. the window and then the, yeah. So the, it, I just like those moments where the comedy comes from the person trying to be completely confident and, and live within or answer these questions that people keep asking them and then realize very quickly, like, I have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I no, also laughed out loud about the um, gecko line when you realize that Jude Law has a, as he refers to him, a fat, sad brother. And all the brother cares about is like collecting geckos and talking about geckos. And Lily Tomlin says, maybe he wants you to talk to him. And he says, about what? Geckos? <laughs> Uh, and that uh, that's a, another great scene that leads into um, another kind of iconic scene if this movie had one which is the, the chicken salad story scene the lady hates chicken salad yeah I, I think Jude Law does a pretty good job in that scene where the, the detectives are playing uh, multiple recordings of him telling the same story and you just see his descent into despair and like that's the thing that pushes him over the edge and that's why I love his character because you just like it's this catharsis where you're like 
to see this asshole sort of have this uh, sort of uh, meltdown and acknowledge himself, it's like, I mean, it's like a fantasy that never yeah. happens. Because we've seen him just, like, sabotage Albert and the, the coalition and take sort of commandeer it and take control of it and lie to everyone and go to the existential detectives in bad faith and, and write this, like, poetry that he's just writing to try to please them and he plants garbage and, like, puts a Kafka book in his <laughs> garbage can. Um, so, yeah, it is really nice to see him have that realization of, like, oh, no, I'm not... You know, I'm I'm completely kind of artificial. I'm all artifice. Right. It's um, all performance, and, yeah. and to see that performance break down, um, and and it's really sort of his his breakdown and Albert's breakdown are to in service of the large sort of philosophical point that the movie makes um, that they're kind of the same. They just don't know it, you know. Yeah, and and that's what's I think the if the film has a conclusion, what you know, Albert says, you guys uh, are you. He's talking to Isabel Huppert. You're too dark, and then he's talking to the d- detectives and he says you're not dark enough. Um, and that's sort of the uh, epiphany he has is that they're both a little bit right that as Dustin Hoffman's character says we're all connected but we're all connected by meaninglessness you know what I'm saying yeah. so it's like a melding of these two schools of thought uh, which is a little got a little too much of a bow on it if you ask me but yeah. um, and also you run into a lot of trouble if you start saying you know we all suffer but it's okay because all that suffering is the same there okay. are there are degrees of suffering that are yeah. categorical, categorically even, well, different. Even within the movie, we have so we have Albert and Brad are the two that are kind of linked most directly, and so their suffering is largely kind of like career based and notoriety based. Right. Um, Tommy's seems to be mortality based. I guess if if he's going back to nine eleven and he's having all this anxiety about. Which would make a lot of sense if he's worried well, about patrol. It's mortality and morality, you know. Yeah, um, but that sort of deep link that I don't know if it's intentional of. What does he keep talking about? It's petroleum, and and we go back to nine eleven, and the basis of that is a lot in oh, you know, and, and American and he, meddling in the Middle East. And exactly, like that. And he makes the point in uh, with the Sudan uh, too at the yeah. infamous dinner scene. Yeah. Uh, so we have his suffering, and then, but then when you think about like Stephen who's the, the Sudanese immigrant who's been adopted by this Ameri- like completely white-bred American family. Um, his suffering is that he was a refugee and like had to leave his country. And if anything, he has sort of the... If you want to like grade people's suffering, which is also problematic, you could say like he has the sort of greatest level. Like His suffering has sort of had the most impact on his life, I guess, um, in a direct sort of way. But he is in a lot of ways kind of the most okay of all those people. He's kind of outside of the story. Well, he's also, really not, he's also he's not really a real character. Like no, he's ne- just kind of... He's, he never, he's sort of there to be recognizable. Yes. So Jason Schwartzman, when he sees him, he's like, oh, that guy, yeah. right? The, the you know, six, seven African guy. Of course, he would notice him if he saw him again. 
What African guy? Exactly. Whatever. And he's always wearing his doorman <laughs> yes. outfit, which is again a little bit weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a strange uh, way of, of putting fitting all these pieces together. Um, but yeah, so you have this idea of you know you can't diminish suffering. Suffering is just a part of life. You just have to sort of to to work within it and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then once you couple that with the blanket image of Dustin Hoffman's character saying like we're all this is all of creation yeah. we're all part of the blanket um, it, it becomes kind of you know, it becomes an issue I think but I will give the movie credit for that is that it doesn't like you said it, it does kind of try to put a little bow on it at least when you know the the detectives and, and the, uh, the French nihilist meet at the end and they sort of like have this moment of reconciliation but uh, Tommy and Albert sitting on the rock are still trying to figure stuff out, which I think is important. Yeah. And um, they're, like, comparing notes, and Albert's like, well, the whole thing about, uh, w- I forget what part he says, but they're like, oh, yeah, the whole thing about everything being connected, that's definitely true. And Tommy's like, I know, man. <laughs> um, so, so I do appreciate that, of, like, they're still searching and, like, right. trying to put things together and right. figure stuff out. And, and the important thing, I think, with the with the African man, with Stephen, is that, in a way, he's a representation, a sort of surface-level representation of kind of international tragedy that Americans have such a tangential, kind of abstracted relationship to, a superficial relationship well, and to. kind of an, an affinity for it, too, in a lot of ways, which I think is what... Tragic Part of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see the the family headed by Richard Jenkins thinks they can kind of... You, the, the movie paints them as kind of compensating for the destructiveness of the sort of American dream by a sort of radical act of adopting a child yeah, from Sudan. For just the price of a cup of coffee a day. Right. You can and, support and, this child. And uh, Jensen and I laughed hard at that... Uh, that scene where Albert goes on his sort of ecological rant and he's like, now we put up so many shopping malls and all the, you know, strip malls. We don't even know what happens at a meadow at dusk. (laughs) And then Jonah Hill says, what happens in a meadow at dusk? And, uh, Albert and the mother who I forget, she's a great actor. I can't remember her name though. They both simultaneously scream, nothing, everything, nothing, everything. It's beautiful, <laughs> uh, but yeah. I, to the, back to the African guy. I think he's representative of this sort of superficial relationship Americans have to these international tragedies. And you see Tommy and Albert at least trying to, especially Tommy, trying to account for the reality of the. Uh, I mean, in Stephen's case, the Sudanese civil war. Um, we were talking about Dave Eggers a few weeks ago. I'm thinking of what is the what and the story of the, the so-called Lost Boys. And um, There's some really interesting things done in that book narratively. Narr- narratively? With the narrative, how the story's told. Narratologically, maybe. And uh, it's it's told a lot of ways in the voice of Valentino Ding, the, the, the Sudanese refugee. 
but he it starts with him being robbed at gunpoint in Atlanta and, uh, and bound by these uh, criminals and he's being watched over like the, the lookout is this kid I guess these criminals have this kid and they tell the boy to like watch make sure this guy doesn't go anywhere and the, the boy is not really paying attention to him because he's bound and he's just watching TV and so the story is being told to who Valentino calls TV boy and so you the reader it's as if you the reader are being addressed as TV boy because because he's the narrator and he's telling the story to TV boy so a lot of sentences start like TV boy you couldn't imagine what I was going through um, and of course I am TV boy you are TV boy you know TV boy is his audience the American sort of consumer uh, and I and I think there's some overlap in, in terms of like uh, intent to cut through that sort of superficial relationship of like TV refugees I was just listening to that Better Oblivion Community Center song uh, mm-hmm. didn't know what I was in for about which is kind of about that superficial relationship to like poverty and uh, people in actual need anyway uh, a lot of stuff going on there except that well, in the song it's a little bit more like Tommy's viewpoint right of like they they realize that they're not really accomplishing anything yeah. but and like they're watching them and, and sort of sympathizing them feeling bad with them but at the end of the day that doesn't really do anything to yeah I've never really water. done anything for anyone yeah yeah I, I want to go back and watch that dinner scene again I, I, I in some ways enough. I think the humor of it kind of distracted me fully from like the issues in it because uh, it's just extremely well written well the in the everything nothing part is, is pretty great and it's part of a few scenes like that in the movie where repetition or just like weird word stuff is I used how myself yeah, how am I not? I said, they're like, how am I not? I said, how am I not? I said, so you probably didn't watch the credits. No. <laughs> Guess who did? And I, I, I had watched it before. If you if you let the credits play all the way through after the songs and everything, uh, it's just a quote, uh, you know, just like a title card that says, how am I not myself? <laughs> Weirdly. I don't know why. Um, and that's kind of the big, the big question of the whole film. There is all these people sort of slowly coming to realize that the way that they've constructed their identity is flawed or unfulfilling in some sort of way. Manufactured. Um, yeah. And most, imposed upon them. Yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe most kind of transparently in uh, Naomi Watts' character, Don, who is, uh, you know, the, the voice of Huckabees, the face of Huckabees. Mm-hmm. And they even show us like a full commercial where she's got like the Uncle Sam outfit on and she's like doing the, the dance and all that. Mm-hmm. And then I guess her moment of breakthrough, I guess, is when she finds Brad's fake poetry and like has a meltdown about mm-hmm. him not being happy. And she, <laughs> why'd you use, the, why'd you say frowning? That doesn't sound very happy because I had to ride with drowning. And so her breakdown sort of comes and she starts wearing overalls and like a bonnet like a big like frontier lady bonnet and eating brownies and stuff mm-hmm. um, which I guess is supposed to be like because she's supposed to be the skinny sort of face of her right. 
right. um, and they show a commercial she films afterwards. <laughs> it's it's almost like a uh, the, the the clips I've seen from Dogtown. Isn't that or Dogville? Dogville, the film. Oh, the Lars von Trier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it just kind of reminds me of that for some reason. <laughs> like she's yeah. like grubby looking and has the the bonnet, and she's like dragging the clothes on the ground. Yeah. Um, and then later on she comes back, and that's when uh, Isla Fisher it's replaced her. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she's going to remain the voice because she's the voice. But <laughs> right. they're going to have this other lady. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you see, uh, her and. Jude Law, Brad, are are kind of the the perfect American couple. Yeah, and then they're just obliterated. You see how performative it all is, and how what what's interesting I think about Brad is that he actually has some convictions. You know what I'm saying? And and the reason for his unhappiness is it, it's not that he's shallow it's that he's sort of learned to be shallow and that he actually has these convictions and then deviated from them you know to try to play the game or whatever albert doesn't really play the game to such a degree and so he's not as well liked um and so all that's kind of problematized and you don't know if albert's convictions are sort of that true you know, because he does work for this coalition, he's trying to save this area, but he kind of like he's most earlier. interested in whether or not his poems go out with it. Yeah, yeah, with and then like sort of being the face of the coalition, right. all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, you, like you're saying about Jude Law's character, I think that's also kind of illustrated in the the chicken salad scene when they're talking about his brother, because he does seem like he, and he even says like I do care about my brother, and I, mm-hmm. he's like he sends and he pulls all the geckos out of his drawer, and he's like I always keep them. <laughs> So he's like, even though it is that itself is kind of a little performative thing, like he's trying to sort of be, right? Um, you know, like he says, a good big brother mm-hmm. to the best that he can with this you know weird little brother that only cares about geckos. Um, Such a specific hobby. <laughs> it is, it, and just the way he looks, you're like, yeah, that guy would be into geckos. I can see that. Um, and it's great when they confront him with that. He sort of does a faux breakdown mm-hmm. you know they show the picture of of this family and his brother and he sort of fake cries and he's yeah. like oh you, you think I'm gonna you know and then they play the clip and he actually does have this meltdown um, and then when he there's <laughs> a weird emphasis on jet skis in this movie well, uh, well they are kind of one of the symbols of just like unnecessary luxury right of just the thing that no one really needs right just throw the jet skis in the back head up to the mountains. Uh, Is it Back to the Future? Uh, no, it's in the movie. Oh, okay. Is that... Oh, no, never mind. It's Back to the Future. It's like, take the truck up to the lake. Uh, when Albert sets his jet skis on fire and he has full meltdown and someone, I guess it's Isabelle Huppert, takes the picture of him yeah. and he's like, don't show that to anybody. Don't tell anybody. No. Tell everybody. Like, he's just a complete disaster. Yeah. And then he shows him that when they're wrestling later. And Albert shows him yeah. that picture. Um, because that's like the real... It's like that picture is the perfect embodiment 
of like the opposite of this performative self that he's operating on for most of the movie. Uh, yeah, so it's weird how kind of inward this movie is about you know true selves and like being your authentic self and and shedding performative aspects of your personality. Um, but at the same time, it's using that in a ecological setting to interrogate how sincere the motives of these, you know, conservationists are. But I don't think, I think ultimately it sort of says they are, they are kind of sincere. You know, the, uh, their ecological sincerity is equal to their um, psychological sincerity. Like they want to know the truth. And that's, you know, Albert says when Lily Tomlin tells him, I think, you know, most people say they want to know the truth, but but they don't really. You know, you should just go home and, you know, watch TV or whatever. And he says, don't give me the brush off. I, I actually want to know. Uh, so I think we're, we're made to believe that they, they are sincere kind of seekers. You know, Tommy and Albert. Uh, and, and I guess there's this implicit continuum between caring about you know, being an authentic, being your authentic self, whatever that means, and having a sincere care for your environment. Yeah. There's, I mean, you can't really, can you, you can't really separate those things. I don't think. Or if you do, you, the authenticity is suffering, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about. So we have, you know, the core set of characters. But then we also have all these, like, side characters, and a lot of them are, like, in Albert's coalition. And I'm thinking of the lady whose family owns the, the marsh. And when that whole group is at the meeting at Brad's office, uh, when he moves the meeting without telling Albert to kind of sabotage him a little bit, um, they all seem very sincere about saving the marsh and conserving the land and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then Brad shows up and starts talking about Shania Twain, and Shania and, sings. <laughs> and, and that's when everyone is like, oh, wow, Shania. And it just makes me think of when he shows them the poster and then he has T-shirts. Yeah. And he's like throwing everybody T-shirts. And it's like extra small for your grandson. Right. Um, it, it's a good kind of mixture between these people who seem to have their heart in the right place, so to speak, and want to work to conserve the marsh. But then if they can also do that in a way that gets them free stuff and gets them a Shania Twain concert, mm-hmm. then why why not do that, I guess? Um, yeah, they're just... Yeah, maybe their heart's ultimately in the right place, but their mind is kind of in the wrong kind of context to be able to do anything that's effective. Like, you cannot care about T-shirts and Shania Twain and do any good... You know, we, we've sort of talked about the problems with the idea of sustainability on this podcast before. And and sort of implicit in that is like, you know, it, it's really kind of the problem of how can we continue to do exactly what we're doing and it not cause problems. It's not, it's not about uh, a reorientation to the planet and a, and a more sort of uh, sincere, authentic stewardship. It's about technological changes that can allow us to 
continue consuming at the rate we consume without causing as many environmental problems. And of course, that's just uh, that's just fantasy. That's not how uh, that's not how things are going to change. And that's you know a lot of the problems we talked about with Interstellar. That's the problem is that it's it tries to stay within a certain paradigm and change the paradigm, and you, you can't do that. Yeah, kind of makes me think of a lot of Elon Musk's stuff, which was just sort of newer, shinier versions of things that are already around. So instead of a car we have now, it's an electric car, except only like, you know, 5% of the population can afford to drive one. <laughs> and we have this battery that can run a whole house, but again, very difficult to, to get a hold of, all that sort of stuff. Um, even the SpaceX stuff, like I can't imagine that they're doing that on a carbon neutral, uh, doing it from a carbon neutral standpoint. Um, so yeah, it's like when you talk about sustainability, what is it you're trying to sustain? Are you trying to sustain the earth and try to keep... Are you trying to sustain nature or are you trying to sustain culture? Yeah, and, and not even, you know, sustaining the amount... Or, like, keeping the level of damage we've done at the same level, right? So do you want to try to mitigate the effects that are already going to take place regardless of what we do now, um, try to keep those in check as much as we can, or do you want to keep your country club membership and your, your uh, you I think, know, I think Toyota, we, Tacoma, and all that stuff... <laughs> I think we use uh, the metaphor of emodium for sustainability. You know, like when, you, <laughs> yeah, when your yeah. stomach's upset, you take emodium, it's like, shit's still in there somewhere. You're just delaying the inevitable. Uh, yeah. But it just relieves, tem- you know, symptoms. Uh, that's sort of what sustainability is. It's like, how can we alleviate symptoms right now as opposed to how can we <clears throat> rethink our orientation to where these symptoms don't emerge or reemerge or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it's sort of the uh, nature equivalent of the family adopting Stephen, right? It's like we did our part. So, like people that recycle, or so. this is this is kind of this is completely unrelated, and tangential. But uh, me and Lava are watching a Australian reality show called Instant Hotel, and an Instant Hotel is like an Airbnb, but in Australia, I guess. And she watched the first season and, and all this stuff, and I watched the second season with her, and we kind of marathoned through it. And it was like this rich old couple. The guy was like 72, and his wife was like 30 years younger than him and had like the big fake boobs and all this stuff. And they owned this enormous house out of like in the rainforest in like North Queensland in Australia just miles away from town and any other neighbors they have their own like big plot of land with like a creek that runs through it and like their golf carts that they can drive through their you know through the rainforest and look at stuff and they kept repeatedly calling it eco-friendly or like eco-luxurious and shit like this and they never explained what they meant by that and I think I came to realize that what they meant is it's in the forest like, it's in the rainforest, it's close to nature, therefore it's the eco part of it. Like, they, they were doing nothing to try to, like... It's not like they had, like, a rain catchment system or any of this other stuff. They were just in the forest. Right, it's it's almost like... It's like Kashi cereal thinks if it puts a tree on the box, it's, like, somehow 
different than fucking fruity pebbles. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. other, or like I, I bought a it, box of puffins. Yeah, therefore, yeah, it's like I think it's like special K or you know, like Kellogg, some sort of Kellogg cereal where there's like the whole back of the box is just a farmer. It's just like this <laughs> farmer just standing what? there, and he's like a little bit overweight, so it's like not. You know, it's not some uppity farmer. It's a good old boy, but it is a farmer. Uh, it's like, why the fuck is there this picture of a farmer on the back of this cereal? Um, but it's just, you know, trying to associate itself with some sort of... As if being in the forest or being on a farm automatically makes you sustainable or, or eco-friendly. Like Nature or Valley granola bars. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Which is literally just word salad of stuff associated with the natural world nature valley that's how i wrote a complaint letter to nature valley one time no <laughs> yeah i wrote so i bought a box of granola bars and you know that's like there's a box of them and then there's like they're individually wrapped and when i opened the box one of them was like unwrapped and you mean like not even the wrapper was open or it was just not in a wrapper it, it was in a wrapper but it was opened it was like okay. torn and exposed and so I wrote this like completely ridiculous overblown hyperbolic letter that started with to be read in a British accent <laughs> and uh, they sent me a bunch of free uh, uh, coupons for Nature Valley bars so <laughs> shout so, out to so, Nature Valley so, so do that <laughs> I said uh, I think that I think it concluded with uh, may the sun never set on the Nature Valley um they liked it. They sent me free shit. They probably like didn't even read it. They're like, oh, okay. And yeah, they just like moved it to that pile and stamped stuffed it. a bunch of coupons <laughs> in an envelope. Sent it back. This asshole. Uh, <laughs> we got we got pretty far off topic. There. I have literally never complained to a company in my life. I just don't buy their stuff anymore. Old fashioned that way. <laughs> I'm just not gonna buy it. I complained to uh, Red Tr- Red Truck Wine. I used to be a big red truck wine drinker, which is like a $10 bottle of wine. And I bought a bottle that was just like disgusting. It was like brown. It's like it wasn't sealed properly or something. I wrote them a letter. They didn't, uh, they didn't respond. (laughs) Fuck you, red truck. Things we're a fan of nature Valley granola party. (laughs) Things we're not a fan of red truck wine. Uh, switch to Carlo Rossi. The Yellowtail. Um, also Australian. Naomi Watts, also Australian. Coincidences? I don't know. Um, yes. I do, what, what do you think the emphasis in I Heart Huckabee's on coincidences? Like, that, that's the whole sort of, uh, you know, that the catalyst for the plot is he's seen this, Albert's seen this African guy three times and he thinks this it's this amazing coincidence you're not really sure why he sees him in the photo gallery and then he sees him at uh, um, as the doorman for his parents apartment and he just sees him the second time and he says oh my god like well, that's when, he, when he's planting the tree in the middle of the Huckabee's parking lot <laughs> yes. and the security guard tackles him while yelling you don't plant a tree in the parking lot <laughs> Um, also, in the Huckabee's parking lot is when Albert is sort of delivering or, like, handing out flyers or whatever, and those construction workers are throwing, like, food in his face. Yeah. 
Except um, the one guy. The one, yeah. And he's like, sorry about those assholes. You know? Which is weird. Um, well, I think I think that is supposed to be representative of his daily grind of like, most people don't give a shit. In fact, most people are a little disdainful of him doing this. But there's like one out of every hundred is like a good person. Well, he's making a small difference. Yeah. Especially if you're working in an industry that's going to benefit from the opposite of what it is you're advocating right. for. Right. Um, but I guess the question then kind of becomes, is Albert's coincidence or series of coincidences, uh, are they meaningful in any kind of way? So they ultimately lead to him having dinner with Stephen's family. And so the question is, is that interaction meaningful? And I think, you know, for the plot of the movie, at least it is, right? Because it kind of leads him to... It pushes him toward the sort of nihilistic end of the spectrum for a while, right? Well, and what's interesting, too... This is, I think this is a very interesting thing I haven't thought about before where it's... The coincidence is meaningful in unconscious ways, in, in ways that Albert kind of hides from himself. So what's significant about the seeing the guy in the photo... Sh- uh, seeing Stephen in the photo gallery is that the detective's telling us that he lied about why he was there. Yeah. And then... Lied about going to see his parents, right? Right. And then he then he lied about... He said it was his friend's apartment. It's actually yeah. his parents' house. And so the, the, the breakthroughs he has are, are related to the African man, but it's about what he doesn't say that the detectives uncover... And it's not about, you know, the the coincidence of having seen this yeah. man there. And in true kind of existentialist fashion, as I look at the picture of Camus on my bookshelf there, um, it, they're meaningful in the sense that he's giving them meaning, right? He's finding the meaning within them, kind of inventing it himself. Um, because he, living in the same town as someone in the same kind of vicinity and seeing them multiple times is not coincidental like it's mathematically mm-hmm. probable mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that he's able especially to especially someone who's so recognizable because he's not from there you know he's a, ref, a refugee yeah, he's yeah. very very tall which again kind of an issue that this actor is being used for that reason to, to be recognizable <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, kind of like the one-armed man or something <laughs> um, but these coincidences sort of have meaning in that Albert's kind of imbuing them with meaning it's just at the beginning he's doing it with the wrong kind of meaning he thinks it's some sort of like you know almost mystical kind of like he he feels unfulfilled in his life and so these coincidences must be there to help him solve that problem when really the problem is that he's not looking at the, the sort of origins of his problems which are his bad relationship with his parents the way that he is really seeking fame for himself instead of right. success for his cause, all this kind of stuff. Um, so it is, you know, it's true of kind of all the the characters in the film, although they don't really ever address Tommy too much, but they're all sort of papering over personal issues with these sort of bigger, sort of next-level well, concepts. Yeah, and I think Tommy's, the real core of Tommy's issues is he needs a partner, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you you meet him as his girlfriend is le- with, uh, is leaving him with their daughter, uh, 
and he's explaining the process of like where her toy, her daughter's toys come from, or her clothes, <laughs> her mom's shoes. Indonesia, little girls like you. Were... Does that sound? You know, do you want little girls to die, Kayla? She's like, no, I don't want them to. And his wife's response, what he says, well, don't you want to? I forget what he asked, but her response is, no, I want to live life like I want right. to live, which is kind of another big question from the movie is, and a question we've been asking for a lot of these films is you know what is the middle ground you find between this complete kind of existential crisis brought on by whatever it may be whether it's climate change or just like a brush with mortality or whatever whatever it may be um, complete just existential despair and just ignoring and going about your life like what's the middle ground to be found there between like Tommy who's just like falling apart and like the the cousin or whatever from Children of Men who just doesn't think about it right and it's and another question just posed by those sort of concepts is should should there be middle ground that is should should middle ground be what is being sought yeah or you know you know that America it's a sort of American idea that truth is in the middle you know, just add everything up divided by two and that's the answer um, so yeah you you kind of wonder about Tommy because he's got this petroleum fixation and you kind of admire his sort of ethical awareness but it, it is impractical so what do you what do you do do you go blow up uh, you know do you go, go eco-terrorize something or or do you plug your ears but, but I, I say the essence of his problem is sort of relational in his relationships because you start with him getting being left by his girlfriend. So mommy doesn't ask these questions because mommy doesn't care. Uh, and then his problems aren't really solved until he, I guess he meets her before, but he rescues Naomi Watts from the fire. And she's had this big transformation. And you see that life becomes a lot more bearable when you... Uh, find someone that is uh, kind of plugged into the same uh, he likes the bonnet he likes the bonnet right and, and that's more her authentic self so so someone who's in your milieu who asks the same questions that you do and that's the only reason he is okay with Albert being his other because the first question he says like, you, you have a car it's like, no, it's like, oh, I knew, I knew there was a bike, reason. And sometimes I, t- I take public transportation. Yeah. Uh, and that's a scene that kind of validates Tommy a little bit weirdly is when the uh, he's at the firehouse and they get a call to a fire and he refuses to get on the truck and he rides his bike instead. And then he's driving or he's riding past the fire truck caught in traffic. Yeah. And he's and the only one that like slaps it. it. Yeah. And he's I'm like, I'm going yelling. to the fire. Where are you guys going? <laughs> he's like yelling at everybody in their cars as he's riding by. Um, my favorite, maybe my favorite line is when I think it's right after they go to Albert's parents and, you know, Albert's going to the dark side and the detectives follow him out, Albert and Tommy out, and they're like, trying to convince him not to go to the dark side and Albert says something like you know the pain the meaninglessness I'm sticking with them because that's what feels real to me and then Tommy just goes word (laughs) (laughs) 
That's when he's like, uh, he's like barricading them off with his bicycles. They're like making them get away. <laughs> but but he he takes the time to like sign out. But that's when <laughs> and he throws the clip. <laughs> like like they've just you know they're making this grand exit, and but I'm gonna sign you out. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> they they do make a like an interesting pair, uh, and then uh, Katerine, uh Isabel Huppert mm-hmm. sort of drives the wedge between them by sleeping with Albert. She was still Albert. teaching them something about the inevitability of human drama. I believe yes, is what, the by, way they phrase it by having a weird sort of like ecosexual man. It experience. reminds me so much of the sex scene in uh, Women in Love, where they just like go hump in the woods. Um, the what's the guy's name? Ken Russell's Women in Love, where it's Alan Bates. Um, I forget the actress's name. Anyway, Kathy Bates. <laughs> Alan and Kathy Bates, but. Yeah, that weird sex scene with the mud and the like, dunking each other's heads. And then there's just when then it cuts to them like doing the deed, and there's just no dignity to it at all. (laughs) Like just like filmed in the most animalistic way possible. He still got his boxers on, like all the way on, and just weird stuff. Um, So yeah, that's a it's a weird sort of uh, sexual relationship, I guess, psychosexual kind of relationship. Um, she catches him like doing the weird like uh, med- meditative blackout exercise and it's like what are you doing so it's like, it, can't I do it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> it, which is a part of the movie that is set up to be really important but like we've talked about kind of gets resolved in a kind of unfulfilling way at the end is the the uh, competition I guess between uh, the, the Jaffies right the Dustin Hoffman, Lily Tomlin's character, the characters, the existential detectives, and uh, Katerine, who's a, she never leaves Paris this time of year or whatever. Doesn't yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Albert says something like, "Are you sure this isn't like a sort of trick where, you know, you you each compensate for the other and you're actually secretly working together?" It's like, no, believe me, there's no secret pact or whatever. Yeah, which you know, coming from coming out of academia, it's a very you know that that part makes a lot of sense to me because you see shit like that all the time of like people disagreeing on theoretical approaches or whatever and they're like that person's a quack and when uh Tommy shows uh Dustin Hoffman's character uh Bernard the the book he's like where did you get this mm-hmm. it's like oh didn't you send it to me he's like I would never give you this book right um and she's like stalking them like walking behind Lily Tomlin like very sort of menacingly mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, yeah, that, I think that's a good observation of kind of academic camp entrenchment. Yeah, where, like the movie points out, there's there's probably more ego than like sincerity involved in that entrenchment. It's like you want to be identified as a certain type of thing, even if it is not a hundred percent intellectually honest. Yeah, you know. And they, they set it up very intentionally as, as a dualistic thing of, like, you're either with them on this idea that, you know, everything's interconnected and everything, you know, we I am you and you are me and I am the walrus and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, Katerine on the other side saying everything is, everything means nothing. 
and Tommy and Albert, like most people, kind of end up somewhere in the middle, kind of still searching out of like, right. you know, everything does mean nothing. We're all but, connected by meaninglessness. Yeah, that's that sort of thing. Yeah. Like life does have suffering, but out of that suffering can come meaning. And, uh, and that's kind of and that's very Camus. Yeah, uh, there for sure. Um, of you know, embracing nothingness and not seeing it as inherently negative because you can fill that nothingness with other things. And yeah, and so there is that, that middle ground and those kind of blurry gray area, but one thing that's not um, problematized or, or scrutinized, it's just presented as shitty in this movie, is um, sort of blind investment in the things a culture imposes upon you and you see that most represented through Albert's parents of just like kind of socialite or, or not socialite but concerned with appearance and just about sort of secluding themselves by like I said Bob Gunn's character is just like obsessed with Shania Twain singing and he's really wants to get his speakers just right <laughs> it's like every dad ever you know just like obsessed with this uh, ever more technologically proficient uh, nest, you know. And his mom is showing him the article about a some sort of like, um, uh, what's the word for like unpaid slave labor in our economy? <laughs> um, what's the word I'm looking for? Temp. Yeah, not a temp, but like uh, internship. There we go. Oh, that, that's right. the word I was looking for. Um, <laughs> about the the internship like hey you could apply for this why don't you ever listen to me like immediately as soon as he comes in the door Mm -hmm. yeah that that's a pretty poignant scene I think like sincerely where uh, Katerine makes his mom read his journal his diary about being made to feel ashamed of being sad about the cat dying yeah she made me what was it like a prisoner in his own spell house. words to show how smart I was right, or whatever right. uh, you were orphaned by indifference <laughs> yes oh, so, okay that, that speaks to your point earlier about the sort of uh, the making problem all with making suffering level all suffering the same she, she brings Stephen up to say he was orphaned by war or whatever or whatever she says and you were orphaned by indifference yeah. or something like that yeah no that both no. of those things are equally meaningless, and it's, yeah, it's, as if as it yeah, orf, orphanhood is bad. That's categorically different. <laughs> yes, I mean, <laughs> very much so. I mean, that's a weird, that's a weird thing to suggest. Definitely. Not that you know both can inflict a lot of you know psychic trauma, sure, but you can't, you know, apples and oranges. You can't really say that those things are equal in any kind of way. Why can't food be compared? As little Dicky says. Of course it is. Um, I watched that uh, Sway in the morning. The little Dicky freestyle. I, yeah. I will say, like, I'm not a huge little Dicky fan, but that was a really good. Like, even if he wrote wrote all that, it's still oh, really good. I mean, good. he definitely wrote all that. The freestyle has taken on a new meaning in the 21st century. Uh, it's just something that's not on the album, you that, know? That you remember. Everyone wrote all their freestyles for sure. Um, but it's a really great performance. It is. Um, it really is. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, why did why did I quote Little Dicky? What did we what did I say? Fruit. Why can't fruit oh, be compared? Yeah. Um, Apples and oranges. That makes no sense. Why can't fruit be compared? <laughs> but that is kind of the big problem in the movie is that you know that's the the kind of final place where you end up of like well you know suffering isn't working on an equal playing ground like I don't I don't think that's an especially helpful philosophical viewpoint uh, for anyone involved either if you're elevating your suffering or uh, sort of you know deflating someone else's I don't really see what's to be gained out of out of approaching the world like that um and it's really I'm kind just of, a millennial snowflake, so I don't really know. It kind of seems like fear, like to me, even like the blanket theory. It's like it's like you need people need things to be connected in order for them to be okay. It's like why? Um, it's a, the scene where uh, Tommy and Bernard are arguing, and it's one of those scenes where like. The, the pixels or whatever in the yeah. screen like pop even out and then he's like even tinier cracks in between yeah. and uh, Albert's like I don't even see anything he's like yeah me neither but I just wanted to think it was like a <laughs> thought like experiment kind of a weird meta moment <laughs> yeah um, but, but it sort of gets at what they're talking about of like of Albert saying well you, we don't even see this stuff anyway and Tommy's saying well no but I just wanted to I was thinking about it you know of, of like doing these thought experiments and what what meaning do you really derive out of you know being Tommy and spending all your time just like despondent and staring at the TV and thinking about all this sort of stuff? And it it it's reminds me of of a Wendell Berry quote I think I've said a few times on this podcast. He he's always saying the big problem, especially now when identity is so sort of hot, where it's like there's so many outlets for identity, like uh, mainly through social media. How do you get from a public position to effective action? So it's easy to have an opinion and a position on things. It is very difficult to put those opinions and beliefs into into a venue of meaningful work. And so, yeah, Tommy, Tommy's asking the right questions. In my opinion, he's holding the right, he has the right position, and yet... How does he get into a place where he can implement his belief into action? You know what I'm saying? Like, because that despair, without an avenue for action, his despair is meaningless. Because if he's just going to sit there and feel miserable, but be, but is limited to where he can only act in the exact same way that people who aren't miserable act, then you might as well be not be miserable, you know? Yeah. Um, and this idea of like action versus inaction kind of make you know we talk about first reformed a lot but makes me think back to Toller and just what and he went from kind of inaction to kind of the highest form of action which is like he was going to take this this violent sort of uh, stand against all these things and then it instead ends up in this kind of other way of, of approaching it um, that is still some form of action, right? So, yeah, yeah, and it's like, but in that it's like he was, he's really in that movie trying to escape. He doesn't realize it until the very end. He's trying to escape this paradigm of like, 
this sort of rational it's really war I think war plays a much bigger role in the movie on a second or third viewing um, and so he's really just doing the most extreme action or he's about to do the most extreme action within the same paradigm he's existed in the whole movie and that final scene where he drops the, the Drano and then goes and has the big romantic moment with uh, Mary is I think is him escaping that kind of war-based paradigm and coming into this new way of being that is relational, that is loving, that is all the things that he was. Uh, it's the opposite of all things that he was. And uh, so the question is, how do you get out of that orientation to the world? Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to derail your totally. Oh, no, it's fine. But that's just been on my mind. It's this idea that there's, there's more than one way to, to get out of the garden, right? To use Jeffers, Jeffers' yeah. whole metaphor about Toller in, in that movie. Um, so, But, you know, in this movie, there doesn't seem... The way Tommy gets out of it, it seems to be... To me, is that he meets Don and sort of... Like you are saying, it's sort of this kind of... Um, codependent kind of thing that he has where mm-hmm. he has to have this other person to sort of share in his beliefs and all that. It's and almost like a refuge. It's like a port in the storm. Yeah. That kind of thing. But, you know, it goes back to Ghosh's whole thing and the great derangement about protests and how, you know, after the invasion of Iraq we have these biggest protests that we've ever seen and it doesn't really change anything. Um, and, yeah, and, and he, he has the very smart observation that these things are sort of brick-and-mortar analogs to Twitter hashtag campaigns, yeah. which which is interesting because it's like the metaphor has done a done a 360 where, okay, we have this thing called nonviolent protest, and then in a sort of traditional mindset, oh, the hashtag campaign is like a supplement or or offshoot uh, of that sort of real life protest but what's happened is is the the main thing has become this sort of online presence to where the real you know boots on the ground protest is like Ghosh says an analog to the online protest to where like, like that's the more essential one uh, and so it's it's all, but his his point. I think what you're getting at is it's all divorced from uh, political implementation. Yeah, it's all separate from that. Yeah, it's all just kind of this simulacrum of of what a protest should uh, sort of be in theory. Um, and it, it kind of it, it makes me think. Speaking of Twitter, there was a you know I'm the, the, I don't remember exactly how this happened, so I'm basically giving you kind of a dramatization of something I saw on Twitter, but it was uh, someone posting about I want to say it was the uh, concentration camps that we that we have on the southern border, um, which, you know, that's become an, a big uh, debate about language of, they're not really con- well, no, they are, they're camps meant to concentrate a population of people in a specific right. area um, and then so someone posts about this and how horrible it is and someone in, in the replies just says, when's the march? 
And they they say it. It's not a joke. Like they're saying it since they're like, when do we march about this? Yeah. And then another reply after that is someone saying, "What the fuck do you think a march is going to do? <laughs> like, what is that going to accomplish? Um, yeah, so unless you were to march in there and bust it up or something." Said after February, <laughs> after the February. Uh, so, so there's a that whole idea of. You know, and I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and like march for things you believe in. Like, yeah, be seen in public, make a make a racket, ruin people's routes to work so they have to think about it instead of be on time or whatever. Like, do all that stuff. Um, it's interesting to think about marching as an appropriate protest for war, like a war protest. You know how we're gonna get them? We're gonna go out there and march. Wait, so yeah, you might as well go. Make a ham sandwich or something like that's equally meaningful. And if you think about like civil rights marches, part of that is that for the people marching, these African American people marching, their very existence and sort of being in that space is kind of a radical act of like just existing and right. sort of inserting themselves. Right, and we should clarify too: there, there, there's meaningful protest. Yeah, yeah. But but it's become such an image based thing where. I mean, the fact the fact that you have to get permits yeah. to protest, it, it, to my mind, is just sort of uh, opposite to the meaning. If I was going to organize a march, I would intentionally, I would like go to the wherever you're supposed to go to get a permit and tell them that I'm not going to get a permit because that is the point. Is that we know the powers that be don't want this to happen, and so we're not going to play by the rules, you know that that tell us that that this can happen. You've lost the battle when you when you agree to get a permit to be in in your own city or in any in any city in your own country. Like that's ridiculous. It's like David, it's like David yes, Harvey. fight the war. You know, or you know, oppose the war, but do it politely. Yeah, it's like David Harvey and his little right to the city, uh, and anything like if you're in a, a city of a specific size, you learn very quickly you have very little right to any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we were talking a few episodes back about Nashville, and because that's we they hosted the NFL draft there, they cut down some trees that were in the way, quote unquote, right. Um, which seems like trees are always in the way of, of human beings. Um, but, you, I don't know, you learn that you, when you're within that sort of urban context, your movement is very highly susceptible to just any sort of uh, sort of law enforcement, legal repercussions, right? Like you have to have a permit to do a protest, to do almost anything, right? If you're homeless, they, they literally change the architecture of the space to keep you from being in that space. I've seen that. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff to be said about the way that you exist just in space and how that's being policed by, like, every little aspect of it. And, like, mm-hmm. surveillance-wise, architecturally, all, yeah, all these ur- different ways. Urban design and planning is, is very interesting in terms of uh, race and class and, I mean, it's kind of obvious but yeah just like you said right down to like the design of like park benches and and subway benches how they're designed so no one so no one can sleep on them 
Yeah, and just like disaster capitalism and how that usually is used to accelerate gentrification and all that sort of like East Nashville becoming like the hipster part of town, mm-hmm. being gentrified very quickly. Um, or what happened in New Orleans, where now like pretty much every school in New Orleans is a charter school because Katrina kind of crippled the infrastructure mm-hmm. in such a major way. Um, and you know, charter schools are put in place to benefit people who don't want their kids mixing with the riffraff, that sort of stuff, right? Um, makes me think of a, a professor of ours that we that we both had in the past talking about how if they had the time, they would set up a charter school for their kids. Is this the same one that played that sort of charter school debate thing at the orientation? Do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. But anyway. probably. Um, if they were in charge of the orientation, probably. Um Maybe the other one. Maybe I do remember that. No, not that. It was the other one. I was going to say, because that one, it seemed like they really want us to think about how racist all these people were. Yeah, but no, it was it was the other one. Okay. Um, I, remember, I remember what you're talking about now. But, yeah, and it makes me think of Albert's activism in the, the film is very much uh, kind of the legally mandated kind where he's, you know, trying to file these... Injunctions or whatever to like slow down, and he does say he's gonna uh, chain himself to the bulldozer at the end, which is kind of the first time he's done it. Well, I guess planting the tree in the middle of the parking lot is kind of radical, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know what kind of repercussions you would face for that. Um, it's also interesting to think like going out there with a jackhammer. I kind of want to do that. Go to Walmart and like start planting trees in the parking lot. Um, although I can't imagine those trees would survive very long, so that's kind uh-huh. of a drawback. Yeah. Um, so he he's very much plugged into the more sort of official channels of we have to try to stop this legally, which we learned from when a tree falls that uh, if a tree falls if a tree falls, if a tree falls um, that that almost never works and that you know the the powers that be whether they are a county government or a city government or whatever will find a way to do whatever it is that they need to do to allow this like further quote-unquote progress and development quote-unquote development yeah you see very quickly in that film just how you know there's this sort of red-blooded american assumption that you know we live in the best of all possible worlds and police officers really have your your well-being in mind you know they're here to protect you and institutions exist to protect the citizens it's like you see as soon as a group of citizens takes issue publicly with something and uh, I don't want to say takes over but occupies a public space in a, in a certain way, you see real quickly how untrue that is um, and how opposed and authori- the sort of authoritarian uh, relationship the kind of uh, I mean I don't want to say government just in general but the state in its different iterations has towards it, in most cases kind of free thinking people um, you know we, we mentioned this I guess it was in the eco-terrorism week about how all these people are pretty smart. You don't. There's not a whole lot of ignorant 
eco activism. You know what I'm saying? These people are like they're either graduated from prestigious universities or they're just clearly thoughtful, intelligent people. Um, and you see that there is a an antagonistic relationship between free thinking, thoughtful people, and the sort of status quo. Uh, as soon as those free thinking people unite and and publicly oppose something, anarchy forever. <laughs> we were just speaking of anarchy. We we're just talking about Paul Goodman and. Anthropocenes would like to take this moment to officially endorse everyone reading Paul Goodman. The end. Be awesome if we had instead of having like actual commercials, we had just like fake uh, endorsements, like a commercial for Paul Goodman, or uh, what did we endorse earlier? Nature Valley. <laughs> Nature Valley, yeah. <laughs> Endorse things like Brought Paul Goodman, Paul and, Nature Goodman and Nature Valley, but not Red Truck. Uh, I was thinking about the the idea of, of development and what that means because I think about you know where we live, it's just becoming an increasingly large suburb for Nashville, and so everything is. I remember moving here, and you would drive from the interstate to like town and there was like a stretch that was just nothing and now that's filled up and it's like a couple of new apartment complexes and how long have you lived here five years right so and like just imagine know, mattress stores just imagine <laughs> man. when i was a kid because i grew up here you could there was one exit maybe two interstate exits and when you got off the exit to go to nashville you didn't see anything until you got to nashville until you got to hickory hollow Exit sixty, you know, and now it's thirty you, miles. You drive through all the Murfreesboro shit. You drive through all the Smyrna shit, right, like all, right. all the all that on the way there. It's just, just sprawl, just concrete uh, as far as you care to look. But it's kind of funny to to see a sign that's like for sale, like land for development, or like this land is undeveloped. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a you know you'll see just this great big fill, and it's like a thriving ecosystem with all these living things and all these these plant species. But that's somehow undeveloped because mm-hmm. to be developed means to be leveled and paved over, and then you put a mattress firm on it, and then that right. now it's developed. Now that's you need a mattress firm and an Applebee's. And now a this is civilization. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, I, I think Wendell Berry always has the word "developed" and "development" in per, uh, quotation marks when he in his writings because he does not want to be mistook, uh, or he doesn't want that word mistaken for. Uh, you know, w- with positive connotations, because he yeah. never means it positively. And that uh, comes into what we're talking about with her Huckabees, because again, that's kind of the central plot. And just to talk about the idea of Huckabees for a second, which is meant to be a stand-in for like Walmart, the and everything store. Change. Yeah, that's the slogan: the the everything store. Um, and we only see Huckabees from the outside, but we all kind of know what it looks like on the inside. Just Costco. Yeah, just any, you know, insert store of choice there. Um, and just this idea that they're developing a mall to put a Huck... I guess Huckabees is, like, in malls, too, or whatever. Hmm. Um, and so at the end, when Brad is sort of getting his comeuppance for double-crossing all these people and selling out the marsh and all this, 
He's like, that, that mall's going to be incredibly eco-friendly. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, and just thinking about, like, to, to live with the, to kind of try to wrap everything up uh, in, a, in a bow, which I'm not going to be able to do. Um, this idea of, of living with the status quo and how for most people that's, they have a life that they're comfortable with and to rock the boat in any kind of way is to endanger that way of life and that's not something they're willing to do right like the like steven's adoptive family of you know we need gasoline or else everything stops and don't you like having everything all that kind of stuff um Mm -hmm. and so in that way that you have to be pro development for any reason at any cost regardless of what it's going to be so every time I see a lot get bought and like they start paving and I'm like this is going to be a mattress store or a car wash or a vape shop or some kind of bullshit that we O'Reilly's don't need. O'Reilly's and O'Reilly's <laughs> auto parts um, or how um, in town here they built a discount tires across the street from a discount tires closed the old discount tires and moved into the new one because it was bigger I guess um, like that's redundant just idiotic development like that doesn't need to happen at all meanwhile it would probably be like moving heaven and earth to get them to put in a new park right right it's like they'll give you so much green space and everything else is just free game for apartments nobody wants to live in because they're fucking hideous and you know don't allow dogs or whatever and and meanwhile uh nothing (laughs) nothing gold can stay uh here in in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where we are, um, yeah, any sort of endeavor to like start a purely local sort of organic uh, restaurant has failed miserably. Uh, there was a, a cool little grocery store on the square that went belly up. Restaurant on Broad Street failed, uh, and, and then like Cheddar's comes in, and everyone's like, "God damn, this is six ninety nine for all you can eat." I'm going there every well, fucking day. You know the the newest example of that is Krispy Kreme. Yeah. So they opened Krispy Kreme, which is part of this like massive new development on the road that goes to the interstate. And I don't know, it's like the circus was in town, right? Like everybody and their dog had to go get a Krispy Kreme donut, as if it's special in any kind of way. Like you can buy those in some gas stations, and it's the same shit. Like just. This is completely, yeah, you literally can't, uh, this is completely tangential, but you just, the word interstate made me think, I was driving on the interstate today, and I was thinking, I don't, I don't think this is an original thought, I'm sure I've read this somewhere, but it just popped into my head about how the interstate and the internet are kind of different iterations of the same thing, it's like, they're just indicative of the technologies at the time they were created but they're really kind of manifestations of the same orientation to the world whereas the interstate kind of you know, in, in a positive light tries to like connect physical space in a negative light it kind of colonizes physical space uh, and the internet in some ways connects uh uh, some sort of immaterial, maybe mythological space, or I, I don't know what kind of space. Uh, one thing it certainly colonizes is our time. Um, anyway, that has. Yeah, everywhere you go now, you have uh, like a QR code or like something, right? So 
it's integrating everything. I, I was again, I was driving on the interstate the other day because you can't help it. Uh, living where we do, but there was like a Pinsky truck, I think, and I was just kind of like absent-mindedly staring at this Pinsky truck in front of me, and it had like Pinsky, and then it had like all the it had like the website, and then like the Twitter, <laughs> like all this stuff, and I was like, that's so weird to think about. Like, at one point, I remember when trucks didn't have their web, like a truck like that wouldn't have the website on the back. It would just have it would just be a truck and maybe some truck nuts. Yeah, if you were lucky, you'd have some drug <laughs> Back in the good old days. Uh, but now it's, you know, all this, like the, you know, not to sound like an old man, but it's just weird to see all that and think about, you like, how quickly it got integrated into everything. You can't have a fucking Penske truck without an online presence. Yeah, and, and when you think about, like, that is how, mo- that's how pretty much everyone... I think would check out a Penske truck is like go online and, th- and then you show up to the store and like hey I did the online stuff where's right. my truck um, or like the people that no longer have to interact with human beings yeah. so like you you buy your uh, like click list shopping or whatever and then you pull up to the store and they put it in your car and you leave <laughs> um, which is just like an older or a newer, newer iteration of like ordering delivery groceries that right. people did like back in the day right um it's, it's just weird to think about how technology is everywhere, sort of everywhere and nowhere because no one recognizes it. Well, yeah, and it's like people talk about the, you know, robots replacing physical labor, and they, they still talk about it as if it were in the distant future, and it's like, it's here. It's been happening for a while. Yeah. It's like, does it, people go through, like, the self-checkout grocery line and some people like target because they still have cashiers right that kind of stuff right so that's that's already happened just just because the robots don't look like they do in movies doesn't mean they're not robots like your phone is a robot yeah and every customer service like experience now will try very heavy-handedly to direct you toward autom- an automated something right mm-hmm. so like you try to call Xfinity, which is like pulling teeth already. And if you try to Google the answer to anything, they'll be like, well, have you tried this? Have you looked at this? Have you mm-hmm. talked to the the online chat bot or whatever? Like the last line of defense for them is like, okay, you can speak to a human being. Right. Um, Since you don't fit into any of these boxes. Yeah, which is, again, sounding like an old man. I'm like, why can't I just talk to people? But well, that's the quickest way to resolve things it, most of the time. In, a, in another comparison, I, you know, I just sort of compared the interstate and the internet. It's, it's making me, your observations just now making me think of uh, Frederick Jameson and his sort of uh, thoughts about postmodern, postmodernism, or postmodernity, I guess, and um, architecture. And he's talking about the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles and as a sort of perfect architectural embodiment of postmodernity and how there's no really like rational kind of uh, intuitive design to where like you go in and you, you literally like can't find your way around unless you read the signs you know what I'm saying so yeah. it's, there's it's like the, it, what he's saying is like the implicit message is obey <laughs> you know you can't navigate this space unless the authoritative unless you follow the directions 
uh, unless you sort of submit yourself to the logic of the creator of this building. Um, and somehow it's going to connect. What did you just say? <laughs> somehow like that, we're talking about, that's the physical space. Oh, and, and then sort of the bureaucracy of of uh, automation is the same way. Like you can't solve your problem unless you submit yourself to this uh, preordained sort of maze of automation. Yeah, and like if you go, I assume it's like this in most places where I grew up, it was like this where the Walmart was open 24 hours, but after like 10 p.m. or something, there was one cashier working and otherwise you had to go through self-checkout. And the one cashier was working so they could keep selling cigarettes at, like, the one, you know, the one cashier yeah. thing where they sell yeah. cigarettes. Um, so it's just kind of interesting that they, they herd you, and they're like, we have to stay open, we have to make profits, but we're going to herd you through this automated interface in order to do that. That way we don't have to pay people to be mm-hmm. here. Um, which is, again, that's part of the, the, the logic of capitalism is make the most profit while, you know, expanding the least amount of your capital, that sort of stuff. In We Robots, Curtis White says, it's the same old Marxist stuff, uh, the, you know, robots taking human jobs. It's not people trying to, it's not, it's not businesses trying to free workers to go pursue their creative endeavors. It's uh, capital, or it's, Capitalism learning that it no longer needs work. It doesn't have to exploit workers anymore, which means it, it it's further exploiting them by not exploiting them because now it's paying them zero dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's something like he, he says, capitalism has learned it no longer needs workers. Yeah, this is, this is when I get really depressed and go on rants about health care or whatever it may be. I always end up at the point of like they just want you to give them all your shit and die. <laughs> the end. Like give us all of your money and then go away forever. Um, that way we don't have to deal with you and don't have to worry about you. Not that we would worry about you in the first place. Um, and to talk about like a virtual world, so you know, in I Heart Huckabees, the you could end up at this point of saying like, why does any of this stuff matter? This is all like it's all in your head. All this stuff is these philosophical inquiries that why don't you just go out and get a job and make money and live life and buy the new Shania Twain CD all that sort of stuff um, and you know I would say to a large extent that's true it's a kind of virtuality that you live within and this is how you're choosing to navigate reality but then through a, a sort of hard-boiled capitalist lens it's the same thing it's just you're working with a different sort of lens on reality and your lens on reality is like what I'm doing here to, you know, showing up to my nine to five and doing the most I can to help the company so I can get my Christmas bonus and go to Disney World or whatever it may be. Like, that's, the, it's like a big video game. Like, not, that's oversimplification, but you're no, it's, working it's, within the system that doesn't mean it. Like, it only has meaning because we've imbued it with so much meaning over time. It, it reminds me of what Zizek says. Uh, one thing he says about ideology is like, the second you think you've escaped ideology and rejected it, you have simply entered into a new ideology. So to, so to, you know, say I'm gonna uh, close my ears and 
close my eyes to all this stuff happening. I'm just going to go live a normal life. There's no such thing as a normal life because that, like you're saying, that normal is also a construct, is also a piece of ideology. Um, and it's manufactured and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And that's so funny, like far right-wing people are always talking about like postmodernists and deconstructionists have ruined the world because there's no stable meaning anymore. And my, my retort is like there never was. It's just you, you have agreed on this and it worked for so many people, you, you know, almost all of them white for so long that now you're like, well, why can't we just stick with this? Well, mm-hmm. it's because it doesn't include everybody. Like, it's right. it's exclusionary of a, a large uh, percentage of the world's population. I mean, that, that's the make America great again. Yeah, yeah. Philosophy. It's Let's like go back. Pleasantville or some shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just, it, that that's kind of where they land, right? Of like, oh, I remember when when men were men and we all know what that what men were and all that kind of stuff it's like you're it's just insecurity with your frame of reference for the world of like that's that's exactly what it is you I I wish I wish everyone (laughs) this sounds so like condescending but I just wish everyone could like think that thought of like please be aware that what you call normal is simply your childhood you know what I'm For saying? For most people, yeah. And, and that's, you know, you see this sort of old man syndrome of like, you know, the uh, sort of grumpy old man and, and, you know, the sort of trope of becoming more conservative as you get older. That's what that is, is because you just start to rationalize your childhood or, or your early years. And, and of course, things change. And so every generation just rationalizes and and uh, in some way tries to justify their childhood and they, they refuse to change and so then they become the conservatives and then their children become you know more radical and then those kids do the same thing and go through the same process and then they're conservative uh, and so I just I think it's possible to open your mind enough to to recognize that pattern and opt out of it and and see things in a in a broader perspective and realize that there is nothing special about the state of the world in your childhood. You know what I'm saying? That is not a basis for an ideology. It is not a basis for a worldview or anything. It's just blind circumstance. And, and it's just laziness for you to hold on to that. It's fear more than laziness for you to hold on to that and call it right and good. And therefore, you can demonize all these other things that do not fit into that uh, conception. Yeah. And it's a lot of it has to deal with, like, how do you respond in a catastrophe or, like, a catastrophic circumstance? Are you going to fall back on, like you're saying, this uh, what, what you're comfortable with, which is sort of those sort of values and things that you formed in your childhood and that seem good and right and normal and comforting to you? Or are you willing to accept that, you know, the world and life in general is is very scary and confusing and difficult and part of living is sort of adapting to that and sort of learning about that is it kind of like makes me think back, you know, like like most people around our age group think back to like 9-11, sort of the reaction to that. 
um, which is sort of like unfortunate that that's become like the er example of like well let's think about 9-11 for a second yeah, the big September thing the big September thing yeah, yeah. Um, where it happens and the immediate reaction to most people around me I remember is just panicking freaking out why do they hate us they hate us for freedom we have to assert our dominance all that sort of stuff uh, meanwhile my response was the opposite and be like what's in Islam right like what is like trying to learn things and sort of figure out like surely this can't be random right so like like Albert showing up like is this a coincidence and right. trying to figure out sort of what historical basis is for these kinds of things and trying to approach it from not an analytic standpoint but just from a knowledge gathering standpoint of like trying to understand something and, and, and the courage the willingness to step out of like you're saying what's normal to you what's comfortable to you yeah uh, and, I, and I think to, to tie it back into I heard Huckabee's it, it's weirdly kind of Freudian with the scene where he goes back to the you know to his parents house and that I think that's sort of what the film is getting at is Albert is still kind of in this sort of Oedipal situation where a lot of his actions are kind of informed by kind of repressed and unconscious um, uh, you know ideas he has that were formed by his relationship with his parents and his childhood um, and what Katerine is sort of inviting him to do is to see his parents for who they are and have the courage uh as Zizek says, the courage of hopelessness uh, to step out of that. Um, I keep saying the word paradigm. I hate that word, but it's useful. Paradigm. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I think I think Katerine is inviting Albert to step out of that paradigm and embrace uh, maybe some negative things. Be- I mean, even if it's hurt, at least it's more honest. Yeah. You know, so, so to sort of run through a recap, David O. Russell, horrible asshole, our Huckabee's kicks ass, and it, it would benefit everyone to be a little bit more like Albert and Tommy in the sense of trying to sort of, I, I, I don't want to use the word deconstruct because it had all the, has all these connotations, but in a literal sort of sense, deconstruct sort of the relationship with the world a little bit and sort of see like... Uh, sort of how do I fit into this bigger picture if at all what is the bigger picture um, you know what can I learn from my interactions with other people what can I learn from the way I view myself all this sort of stuff just being introspective yeah and letting and and crucially letting that introspection the sort of inner stuff going on inform your relationship to the to the external world because I mean that's just, if all you're doing is, you know, sort of taking an inventory of your inner experience, who fucking cares? This is this is to make you a more well-rounded person that can, you know, hopefully enact. Like we're talking about getting to this place of action from a from a just a place of having holding a position. Uh, and and that's one thing I do like about this movie is that it shows that continuum between your sort of inner experiences and their impact on the external world um, and I do I do think people should ask the que- the central question of the film which is how am I not myself um, yes. so and there's it's a funny moment because I keep repeating that question but really 
that question to me it seems like it means what do you do first of all who are you what who how do you see yourself and how can you continue to see yourself that way if you're doing things that are not consistent with that so Brad is the perfect example of that you know he sort of sees himself as this environmentally minded kind of do-gooder uh, when he's really just this corporate asshole yeah um, and like one last anecdote that sort of gets to that is uh, when I used to uh, go to poetry open mics and read my stupid little poems that I would write it would almost inevitably happen every time that like a line that I wrote as a sort of joke or sort of point of humor would be taken seriously and a, a line that I wrote to be serious would be taken as as humorous as a joke so I'd read something that I would think would be like kind of you know brutally like honest or something and people would laugh about it and then I'd read a joke and they'd be like oh um, and that kind of made me getting to this point of like examining your identity of going back and being like why is this happening why do I think that's funny and that's serious like what, what is the inversion that's happening here it makes um, me it, it's like the opening of uh, The Life Aquatic when uh, Zisu's being interviewed you know <laughs> yeah. And he, he says, uh, why did you call it a jaguar shark? That's the first thing that came to my mind. And the audience laughs. He says, why are they laughing? going to hunt it down and kill it. <laughs> what would be the scientific purpose of killing this endangered species? Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, is like the most honest, sort of truthful <laughs> response, but it's hilarious yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like Samuel Beckett stuff of like... <laughs> You know, so true that so true and brutal and awful that it has to be hilarious. Um, so yeah, that's we've weirdly talked about our heart huckabees in and around our heart huckabees longer yeah. than a lot of other stuff. Oh, I, um, I fucking love this movie. Yeah, it's I? a like if we were going to give some kind of verdict, like it's it's a good movie. Yeah, like all the Russell stuff aside, it's well yeah. made. It's, yeah, it is very kind of like early two thousands feeling. Yeah, you know, but it's in a good way, I think. Um, so next week, we're returning to animated features. So is this just the second one? Yeah, Wally. Yeah, I guess. And now this, unless you count Avatar. Avatar's which kind you, of, you kind yeah. of could, I guess. Yeah. Um, but going way back, this is now the oldest movie we've done. Uh, so what was the previous? It's like nineteen ninety. I think October Sky was the oldest. Ninety nine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So going back to nineteen ninety two. I was three years old when this movie came out, but I remember it from when I was a kid. Uh, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, a childhood favorite of a lot of people. I think a lot of people would say that they remember this film and are fond of it. I remember Robin Williams as the bat, mostly. I don't remember it at all, honestly. I, I, know I, you. I know I saw it. And weirdly, I went to uh, the, the elementary school I went to I remember I had teachers that were, I think, kind of, for where we live and the time we live in, kind of uh, a, more aware than most people of, like, eco-environmental issues going on with the Amazon rainforest. And I remember going to, like, all these little... We've had people come, because I went to a, a school called Campus School. It's, like, attached to the college in a way. So we'd have these teachers come over and, like, give these presentations in, like, the mid-'90s. And I think uh, 
you know, Ferngull is probably, I don't know what this says about America, but is a big reason why a lot of people were, um, at that time, even <laughs> kind of tangentially yeah. aware that, like, forests were being cut down uh, for reasons dubious, dubious at best. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Should looking for... Should be the name of our podcast, Dubious at Best. Dubious at Best. Uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it because I, I don't remember anything about it. Yeah, it's I was six, I think, last time I saw it, so um, it's going to be uh, an experience yeah. to see it. Um, so, yeah, Fern Goley uh, next week. Uh, follow us at Twitter, at Twitter, on Twitter, at Anthropod Tweets, as always, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that good stuff. Pornhub. Pornhub Premium. I'm trying to get a Pornhub Pro. Pornhub reference in every episode as well. <laughs> be like a super cut later on of all the, all the Pornhub references. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, check us out at those places. Uh, Fern Goalie next week. Uh, That's all she wrote. Godspeed.